So I'm going to speak for about 25 to 30 minutes, and then I'll get out of the way and let the, uh, uh, the, the, the wrecking balls start falling. I've titled my talk tonight, Why Are We Doing This? Why are we doing this? In a world with so much negativity, why are you doing a conference on such hostile, combative themes? The church is supposed to be about love, positivity, Jesus. These issues are a distraction. Talking about critical theory, critical race theory, Marxism, cultural Marxism, BLM, Antifa, postmodernism, the Great Reset, COVID mandates, diversity, equity, inclusion, social and emotional learning, white privilege, white fragility, colorblindness, and systemic racism. It's all a distraction. Don't talk about those things. It's politics. The church isn't supposed to be political. Haven't you heard about the separation of church and state? You shouldn't speak about these things. You shouldn't speak against them. Just talk about Jesus and everything will be okay. And don't apply doctrine to these issues. Don't apply the scriptures to the culture. Why are we doing this? Because the evangelical community is asking why people would do something like this. If everybody got it, there would be no need for an event like this. But because the question is in people's minds, that demonstrates that there is a need for an event like this. That statement, just preach the word and everything will be fine. Is this why every single large church, every Christian college, and every seminary in the country has been compromised, at least in part, by the woke agenda? From the seminary classroom to the campus ministry, from the youth group to the ladies' ministry, virtually every seminary and large ministry has been so influenced by the postmodern agenda that when, let's just say, for example, young professionals or recent college grads come to New York City from some of the strongest churches in the country that are known for their expository preaching and sound doctrine, those same young people from those campus ministries and youth groups come to New York and instantly fall in line with a local megachurch that is completely in league with the postmodern agenda of the New York Times. Well, why, why is that? Well, it's because their youth pastors back home were handing out books by these same megachurch pastors in New York for years without warning, even though the senior pastor was against it. These young people all across the country have been trained to be winsome rather than to be courageous. They've been prepared and conditioned to give in to the pressure of the world. When being interviewed with yes and no, black and white questions, they see these celebrity preachers giving long-winded, nuanced answers that don't even get to the answer. Rather than teaching the young people to speak the truth plainly, yes, in love, but speaking it plainly and understandably the way a senior pastor would, 
The youth pastor teaches them that with enough nuance, they can avoid the hatred of the world. So why are we doing this? I've divided this into three reasons. Number one, the first reason is because God demands it. God demands it. We have a false sacred secular divide in the church today that is so common. In contrast to that sacred secular divide, we see that God cares about all things. He doesn't just care about the Sunday morning sermon. He cares about the Monday through Saturday as well. That sacred secular divide does not exist in the mind of God because God has authority over all people and all things, not just the Christians. There's no area of life that is exempt from God's dominion and authority. He calls us to faithfulness to himself. And he calls us to faithfulness to himself in every area. I understand that the NAR movement has this seven mountain mandate and the NAR movement has so many issues, but that doesn't mean that those categories of life are exempt from the authority of Christ. God still has dominion over your workplace. He has authority over your home. And yes, he has authority in your church. If it wasn't the case, the Apostle Paul would stop halfway through each of his letters. Instead of preaching the gospel in the first half of each of his letters and then pivoting and saying, therefore, on the basis of these things now, walk circumspectly. On the basis of these things, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. Paul is constantly bringing the gospel to bear in every aspect of believers' lives. Every aspect of our lives belongs to Christ, and it is not legalism to call people to obedience to his word. I've just brought in two texts to support the idea that God demands our attention to what could be considered polemics. You've got things which are irenic. If you know the name Irene, it means peace. Irenics are things which are peaceful, Polemics are things which are combative, like arguments and defenses, sort of like apologetics, which don't mean apology, but it means a defense. So in 1 Timothy 6, 12 through 14, Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. You would think this verse doesn't even exist in scripture if you were reading the Gospel Coalition today. You would think this verse is not in the Bible because we're not supposed to fight. It's bad to fight. You need to love. And so these truth and love are set up in opposition to each other, which is a false conflict. It's a false dilemma that doesn't exist in the mind of God or in a faithful preacher. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God. God is watching. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. He's saying that Jesus was real. These are not fairy tales. This is not legend or tradition. Jesus made the good confession before Pontius Pilate. And on that basis, Paul charges Timothy, verse 14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming back, and because he's coming back, we need to fight 
the good fight today. The second text of scripture is just a couple chapters over, 2 Timothy 4.1. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He doesn't tell him just teach positive things. He says reprove. And he even says rebuke. Verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. This is what's happening in New York City in the name of contextualization. In the name of contextualization, church planters are trained here with money raised in the Bible Belt by, by frauds. Liars come from New York City to the Bible Belt and they tell nice old ladies who believe the Bible is true that they're planting doctrinally conservative churches in New York City. Here, look at our confessions of faith. Look at what we believe. And then they list these church plants on these websites. But if you go to those church plants in New York City, you'll know that they don't believe in those doctrinal statements. They don't abide by these confessions. So what they do here, they tell them, well, you need to contextualize. And instead of sticking with Paul's use of the concept of contextualization, like in Acts 17, where he uses this idea of speaking in words that people will understand in order to bring the gospel to bear on their lives, in order to confront them and convict them, that's a proper understanding of contextualization. But instead of that, what we do in New York is we use contextualization to make the gospel less offensive or not offensive at all. And so there's a thing called theological vision. So you as a church planner have to develop your unique theological vision. You take your doctrinal statement and you have your application, but in the middle you have your theological vision, which is unique to you. And you have to go into that neighborhood and that community and find out what their needs are. And then you adjust all the things over on this side so that it applies in a way that is acceptable to the people. So what that means is you have, oh, you're in a pro-gay neighborhood? Well, we'll definitely get rid of that line from our doctrinal statement. Oh, well, you're in New York, so I guess all our churches are going to be egalitarian. That's what happens. Time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. You can't plant a conservative church in New York. People won't come. That's what they say. Now, for people in our position, why are we doing this? That's the question. It keeps coming up. Ignoring today's fight has never been an option for the faithful shepherd. There's that uh, now somewhat famous quote that's been falsely attributed to Martin Luther about where the battle rages and all that stuff. It wasn't from Luther, but that's irrelevant. Um, You're supposed to fight where the fight is. You're not supposed to to say, okay, there was a fight 50 years ago, so I'm going to fight that fight. It's really easy to fight the fight from 50 years ago, but we need to fight today's fight today. And it is not an option for the faithful shepherd to ignore that. For a faithful shepherd to look at a pack of wolves carrying off half of your flock and saying, ah, well, we killed the bear last year, and that's good enough. Well, that's not acceptable. 
It's not acceptable to say, well, we got justification right. So I'll leave this controversy about humanity and human civilization to the other guys. Beyond scripture demanding it, biblical themes also demand it. You see ideas like a rod and a staff. A rod was for beating and killing enemies like wolves, and a staff was for guiding the sheep. You see the theme of a sword and a trowel. One is for building and one is for fighting. And then theologically, you see the concept of law and gospel, and you have to have both. Some people want to only teach truth and history. They want to use the trowel, but not the sword. They want to build up the church, but they don't want to defend the church today. They want the shepherd's staff, but they avoid the rod. They want a positive ministry focused on truth, and the only falsehood that they want to confront is perhaps prosperity theology or a historical debate that has been so long settled that it's not even a controversy today. So there are people who are convinced that the woke issue will blow over. And I say this to you. Yes, it will not prevail. There is truth there. The church will never perish. But the church will never perish, and the church will be sustained by the means which God has provided. And the means which he has declared and provided to us is to fight the good fight of faith. So that's point one. God demands it. Why are we doing this? God demands it. Number two, history. History demonstrates it. I'm not going to go deep into this. Other people are going to do more on that. But history is a record of the wins and losses of the church. It's a record of the church's successes and failures. It's a record of the church's obedience or disobedience in their specific cultural moments. Now, specifically, as it relates to theology, well, I would encourage you, if this was a Sunday, I would just, I would take some feedback from you, but I don't have much time. So name a point of theology that hasn't been debated in time. Name something. It's impossible. Every single element of theology has been a point of polemical debate at some point in history. And also beyond that, name a point of theology that doesn't have specific application in its culture. Even that whole debate in, what, 1054 or something, when the Eastern and Western church split over with the double procession or the uh, single procession of the Holy Spirit, like, that is important because that, that tells us whether there's a way to God outside of Jesus, which then plays into evangelism and missions. Do we need to share the gospel, or can a person be reconciled to God through the Holy Spirit through Islam, for example? But getting back on sort of the mainstream, the deity of Christ, the personhood of the Holy Spirit, the definition of the Trinity, the doctrine of justification, the inerrancy of Scripture, the definition of marriage, there are many, many of these. Historically, there have been many councils, but here's three. The Council of Nicaea, the Council of Constantinople, the Council of Ephesus. There have been many statements written, many confessions, many creeds. Some more recent statements, there was a Chicago statement on inerrancy. There was a Danvers statement on, I believe, biblical manhood and womanhood. There was a Nashville statement on gender and sexuality. And then uh, several of the people here were the ones who wrote the Dallas statement on social justice and the gospel. Let me just ask, raise your hand if you signed the Dallas statement. 
I would encourage you all to read it, at least. To read it, and if you find it agreeable, to, to sign it. Beyond that, I would say, well, when did you sign it? If you signed it today, I understand. But if you knew about it in 2018 and you didn't sign it in 2018, I would ask you, why not? Were you posturing? Were you trying to keep a $40,000 a year job? So there have been these statements that have come out. And then history shows us that today's polemics, today's arguments, define tomorrow's orthodoxy. Today's polemics define tomorrow's orthodoxy. Think of any of these issues. The deity of Christ, for example. If, if the, the orthodox, the true Christian said, you know what, we're just going to stay home and let Arius have his thing because it'll blow over. I don't know what would have happened, but it would not have been pretty. Today's polemics define tomorrow's orthodoxy. That doesn't mean that we need to go for a lowest common denominator and try, and try and water down the truth as much as possible and say, hey, we're going to be an Apostles' Creed-only church because that's what a Christian is. No, we need to be faithful on each point. Another element from history, I wasn't sure quite how to, to, to weave this in, but a very problematic element is this pietist movement in Germany. Pietism was a German German reaction to a dead state church. And that shows us that ecclesiology matters. Your mode of baptism matters because you're either protecting the church with a regenerate body of believers or you're importing generation after generation of unconverted people into the roster, the membership of the church. And then eventually those people are able to vote and to make decisions. And so the result of that was the Lutheran church became very dead. If all of the Lutheran emphasis was on the external objective work of Christ and you received it at your infant baptism, it resulted in multitudes of lost church members and unregenerate clergy. Now, the pietist movement reacted against that. They focused on the heart, and that was good. They needed to do that. But it became the focus. The internal subjective experience became the focus. The community of believers withdrew from society. They made compounds of Christian societies that were separated from the world on the property of a guy named Count Zinzendorf. They were focused exclusively on personal piety and their own sect, their own sectarianism. And they didn't really care what was happening in the rest of the world or society. They didn't care if the world went to hell in a handbasket. And that's the context that a guy named Adolf Hitler found really easy to play in. It was really easy to do whatever he wanted when the church was either completely dead or completely withdrawn from society. So don't be a pietist. My third point is experience details it. So we got God and scripture demanding it and then history demonstrating it. Third, we have experience detailing it. I personally have sat in dozens and dozens and dozens of membership interviews with biblically faithful Christians who have had this experience. Hey, Andy, my church went woke. They don't preach the Bible anymore. All they preach is progressive politics. Whether or not an event was even true, the following Sunday we have a lament session for whatever just happened. 
people don't know what to do because this happened in their church. These things are everywhere in evangelicalism. But beyond that, which I trust Mike and others will, will unpack this, but it's happening everywhere, not just in the church. We read over and over and over again about concerned moms who are going to parent-teacher meetings because their children are being taught lies. Their children are being taught lies in elementary school in a variety of forms, but two are in the form of activist sociology, and another is in revisionist history. We're rewriting history. And some people might be tempted to say, oh, well, that's, that's politics, and the church isn't supposed to be concerned with that. We just preach about Jesus. And because the Bible doesn't talk about you know, American history or sociology or American politics, then, then the church just stays out of all that stuff. Well, let me just tell you, we live in a world today where if the world was a house, the house is on fire. And there's debate within our camp, within our circles, about whether or not the house is on fire. Is the house on fire or is this a building project? Now, I don't mean a building project in the sense that God burns it all down and he's going to rebuild it. I mean, people looking at it and saying, this is good. And other people looking at it saying, this is, this is bad. The house is on fire and people are saying, well, I kind of like the smell of burnt wood. And The house is on fire and people are sound asleep in the house. The house is on fire and people are saying, there's no fire. There is no social justice movement. Have you heard that? The house is on fire and some are saying, well, we shouldn't do anything about it because we believe in Jesus and he's going to save us if he wants to. Sort of a fatalistic approach. You know, you're sitting in your house and it's all on fire and you're like, well, if Jesus wants, he's going to come and get us. Another one is, we believe in Jesus, and he's going to save our souls. So third-degree burns aren't that big of a deal anyway. If you think that the physical doesn't matter because your soul is saved, I would just encourage you to go visit some people in the hospital. Go talk to people who have third-degree burns. Go talk to people who grew up in Soviet Russia. Read some articles about what the church is going through in China right now. It's not good. And sure, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, but not always. Sometimes they just get killed and they die. And in China, the intense persecution that's driving the church underground and forcing them to to not be able to have things like theological training creates a, a birthplace for all kinds of cults. False religions. So this idea that, it's, that we should bring in persecution because it's good for us, I believe is very misguided. We shouldn't seek to destroy the church in hopes of speeding up Christ's return. We shouldn't seek to destroy the world because we think it will speed up Christ's return. So in closing, do you remember back when it wasn't a controversial, to th- controversial thing to say 
that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords? Well, I would just remind you of that again right now, and that is that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's king over all of history and all the future, and even over you. And if you're coming here because someone invited you, I would encourage you to make sure that you've been reconciled to that king because there is a judgment day coming, which I read in that verse earlier. Do you know Jesus? Have you been reconciled to this king? What does that mean? Well, this guy named Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's God the Son. He's totally equal with the Father, but he came into this world and he lived a sinless life. He perfectly obeyed all the the righteous demands of the law of God in the place of sinners like you and me. The law of God. Think about the Ten Commandments. Have you heard of ideas like don't steal, don't murder, don't lie? There's a bunch of them, ten of them. And we've all violated God's law, even you. So because of that, you're a sinner. And if you died, if you got hit by a bus when you walked out of the door, if you are not reconciled to God, then hell is what's waiting for you. Judgment and then eternity. And if you're a sinner, which we all are, and if you're not reconciled to Christ, which some of you are not, then you need to be reconciled to Christ. You need to repent of your sins and believe on Jesus. You need to turn from trusting in yourself and your self-righteousness and place all of your hope and all of your confidence on him. The Bible says that no one who comes to him will ever be turned away. So I would encourage you, if you are here tonight because you're interested in like an anti-vax church service, I'm glad that you're here. I'm thrilled that you're here, but I would encourage you to consider the condition of your soul. Have you been reconciled to Jesus? Are you trusting in him? See, when when he lived, he lived this sinless life and then he died on the cross. And on that cross, he stood in our place. The judgment that we do fell on him and he died. He actually died. He didn't just appear to die, but he died. And then he was buried. And then he rose from the dead on the third day. And in his rising, he conquered sin and death. And he proved that everything that he said was true. The resurrection is a fact of history. You can't get away from it. Jesus actually rose from the dead. And this has been verified both by biblical and secular historians. So Jesus rose from the dead, and then 40 days later, he ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his people. So you, believer, when you sin, Jesus is your defense attorney. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for his own. And if you are not a Christian today, I would urge you to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior And not only will all of your past sins be taken away, but all of your future sins also, because Jesus is our eternal advocate. He will never stop interceding for his own. Jesus Christ is Lord of lords and King of kings. And this is why we're doing this. Let's pray. Father, I pray now for your help as other speakers are to come that you would give them clarity of mind, thought, and word as they speak, that everything that they say, uh, that we would understand it, that we would um, be able to see its truthfulness and its bearing in our lives and in our society today. Lord, help us not to be overwhelmed by dark things, by heavy words. 
but help us also not to run away from heavy statements. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.